How has the state of journalism been declining in recent years? What precipitated the decline of journalism in terms of its truthfulness, its ethics, its curiosity, and its status as the fourth estate? Are journalists passing on the message contradicting the mainstream narrative about the Russia-Ukraine war being targeted as Putin accomplices? Is British intelligence working alongside the protectors of disinformation guardians to keep genuine investigators of the truth smeared and deplatformed? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we will be examining the changes to the way journalism is practiced in the world today, its toxic effect on the quality of news, and the multiple instances of independent sites being misrepresented as putting forward fake news. Our first guest, veteran journalist of high acclaim, John Pilger, will assess how the space for exceptional work simply isn't there anymore, and how even in the presence of full information, it is taking us to a place beyond the propaganda level of 1930s Germany. Then we will get word from Max Blumenthal of the Grey Zone about how they were targeted for deplatforming and found out that they had exposed their accusers as, in fact, a state intelligence operation. On this week's program, Conform or Be Cast Out, the new model of journalism during a time of war. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 7, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Clearly, Western governments had viewed Dayton from the start as merely a transitional and not a permanent arrangement, leading relatively soon thereafter to the establishment of a strong central government which they could more easily control and with greatly weakened and diminished constituent entities. The steadfast opposition of the Dodic government to these planned encroachments over the last decade and a half has been the central political drama in Bosnia in seeking to preserve the status of the Republic of Srpska as provided by the Dayton Agreement. Dodic has sought political allies and he found them in the Russian Federation and lately also in Orban's Hungary. For the collective West, the stance of the Republic of Srpska leadership is intolerable. In order to remedy the situation, it has used the standard instruments at its disposal to instigate an orange revolution, quote-unquote, at least twice around election time in 2014 and 2018. That comes from the article, 
Bosnia-Herzegovina, in the Republic of Srpska, so far another orange revolution falls flat. By Stephen Karganovich, posted October 5th. What we are facing, if we as people worldwide do not join hands in solidarity and spirituality to avoid over the next eight years, UN Agenda 2030, the incorporation into a totally digital world order planned by a small global financial elite, we will soon find ourselves without individual, social, political, cultural sovereignty and autonomy. This would be the fulfillment of the Great Reset. Human individuals would be transformed into a chipped transhuman society where no one owns anything physically or spiritually and all think robotically are controlled by algorithms but are happy. We are threatened with complete deprivation of freedom of our personal property. This is what is coming to us if we do not wake up from our comfort slumber and in solidarity and spiritually without hatred, but always accompanied by the light. Free ourselves from this diabolical cult to regain our personal property, our absolute human freedom with which we were all born. That comes from the article, Property Personal, Freedom and Personal Property Lost in the Last Two and a Half Years by Peter Koenig, posted October 5th. A team of stewards will be at Westminster Station to direct people to the chain. When everyone has arrived and it's time to link arms and form the chain, megaphone, sirens, and air horns will give the signal. Another signal will sound to bring the protest to a close after Stella Assange and others have made statements to the press. The protest will be finished after our video team has had the opportunity to film the whole chain. Please feel free to bring free Assange banners, wear Assange t-shirts, etc. That comes from the article, Human Chain for Julian Assange this Saturday, October 8th. Posted October 5th, originally published on Don't Extradite Assange. Make no mistake, the revival of the U.S. partnership with Pakistan is a long-term strategy necessitated by profound geopolitical compulsions, ranging from the Taliban rule to China's towering presence in Pakistan, the BRI, U.S. adversarial relationships with Russia and Iran, NATO's progression toward the Indo-Pacific, and so on apart from the compelling reality that Pakistan is an important regional power and American strategies in the region cannot be optimal without Islamabad's cooperation and partnership. In the final analysis, the U.S. acts only in its interests. Price admitted with candor that the U.S. has, quote, different points of interest each, unquote, in its relations with India and Pakistan. Plainly put, the U.S. has different uses for Pakistan and India, and they do not necessarily collide. That said, there must be some disappointment, too, that India is not performing optimally. That comes from the article, India Can Live with U.S.-Pakistan Makeover, by M.K. Kumar, posted October 5th, originally published on Indian Punchline. 
These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The mainstream press has gone from prioritizing the facts needed to propel wars to eliminating the opposition views altogether. Some very established award-winning journalists have also commented and lamented the downward spiral of the news that it's, that's been taken in the last decade. John Pilger is an Australian British journalist and filmmaker based in London. In 2017, the British Library announced a John Pilger archive of all his written and filmed work. The British Film Institute included his 1979 film, Year Zero, The Silent Death of Cambodia, among the 10 most important documentaries of the 20th century. John Pilger has twice won Britain's highest award for journalism and has been International Reporter of the Year, News Reporter of the Year, and Descriptive Writer of the Year. He has made 61 documentary films and has won an Emmy, an Emmy a BAFTA, and the Royal Television Society Prize. He's contributed to BBC Television Australia, BBC Radio, BBC World Service, London and Broadcasting, as well as The Guardian, The Independent, New Statesman, The New York Times. And of course, he's also contributed to the independent news sites, including Information Clearinghouse, Truthout, ZNet, Common Cause, Truthdig, and of course, Global Research. John Pilger, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thank you, Michael. Uh, interesting in the in that um, uh, uh, biography of me you read. Uh, <clears throat> really, the uh, the newspapers uh, that I used to write for, I no longer write for uh-huh. because they're they're no they're they're just they're part of our. I think what we're going to discuss, uh, they are uh, no longer no longer open to journalists like myself, and that my work now is almost exclusively on the net. Uh, and I think that shift really says a great deal about, first of all, the internet has provided some itself some extraordinary opportunities and journalism, but it's also provided a refuge for those like myself who have spent entire careers in the mainstream media uh, and find they are no longer wanted in the mainstream media. That's, uh, that's really, I think, probably an indication of the the seriousness of the closing down of a pluralistic media, a genuinely democratic media, if it ever existed, uh, than anything else. You simply can't get a say anymore. I remember some aspects of the, the Iraq war and the Afghan war, and they were relaying some misleading information, but it's nothing compared to what we're experiencing today with regard to the the NATO-Ukraine-Russia war. You have reported through, uh, what, seven or eight different wars, shooting wars, if I'm not mistaken. I I think you've commented that the distortion is now worse than ever. 
could, could you give an account of why this reporting has, has gotten so bad? Is it a product of the government censors figuring out how to change media to their satisfaction or, or is it something else going on altogether? The voices have been silenced, as I was saying. I mean, even as recently as the, uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, uh, <clears throat> the invasion, even more recently, the invasion and destruction of Libya in 2011, uh, or even the real beginning of the Ukraine war, which was in 2014, um, there were journalists in the mainstream, across the mainstream, very few, small minority, but who were, who were questioning the official narrative. The official narrative now rules supreme. There are no more dissenters. Those who put their hand up to dissent are quickly silenced. The most extreme case of this, of course, is Julian Assange. Julian Assange, uh, the, the, the impact of WikiLeaks and its revelations on the, the so-called narrative uh, was so dramatic, so traumatic, it turned it inside out. Uh, that rather trite expression, truth to power, well, there you had truth as a tsunami to power. And of course, the result of that has been the persecution of Julian Assange to the point where he's now awaiting extradition to the United States, where he will be tried on, on bogus charges, um, tried for the crime of journalism, in fact. Yeah. Well, we're hearing that our, our reporting is, is, is devolving essentially to the point of, uh, would you say, I mean, maybe 1930s propaganda in Germany. I, I thought we had overcome that, but you know, as we had racism and anti-Semitism and, and sexism and, and other matters, it seems that we're sliding back or perhaps we're experiencing a, a cycle of some sort. I mean, do you think that fear of the public and I suppose journalists uh, fear as, as what is essentially an accomplice of the state. And, and if so, what are the key events that helped mold us into this new McCarthyistic paradigm? Hmm. Well, I mean, essentially, of course, not a lot has changed. Journalists have always been compliant. Uh, most censorship has been, uh, uh, has come from compliant journalists, those who will go along with the system, those who don't go against the grain, those who just don't do their job, don't question power. They'll, they'll question power as long as it's uh, 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 an official enemy or, or something that the prevailing order doesn't like, but it will never look in the mirror. The difference today is compared with a few years ago, a few years ago, 
there was a scattering of journalists who did have spaces, rather precarious spaces, within the media to question, to do their job as real journalists. Those spaces have closed. They've shut down completely. I mean, you mentioned the 30s. There was more outspokenness in the 30s than there is now. There's more media now. And I suppose the comparison itself is not completely valid because we now have this extraordinary phenomenon, the internet, which if you really want to find out something, you can, but you have to know how to navigate through the the internet. But the mainstream media, comparing the two, there were outspoken voices uh, in the 1930s. The newspaper I used to work for in London, the Daily Mirror, had the most uh, extraordinary editorial writers, a popular newspaper, uh, which uh, uh, were blowing whistles on practically everything they wrote. And when the war began, they turned those whistles around on the British High Command and started to blow whistles on incompetent generals. Um, Would we have anything like that today? Most certainly not. Well, could maybe just what what strikes you as the most uh, significant uh, omission in in terms of, of the Ukraine war or, or anything else that that demonstrates just how how bad we've become? Well, <laughs> I'll give you an example. Somebody I know with whom I'm quite friendly has sent me an article he's written. He's very pleased with it. Uh, I don't think he'll be listening to this. Um, but I read this article with, with dismay. It was about the Ukraine war and how, how it started. And it, it's a collection of um, all the assumptions uh, that have been accepted without any real critical discussion uh, in the West about the Ukraine war. The fact is, it did not start with Vladimir Putin's invasion in February. It started in 2014. There's no question about that. And unless we understand the context of why it started, then almost any opinion on it doesn't have a hold a great deal of worth. Uh, but the the media today is awash with these with with much worse uh, than the article article I've just read. I have to say, uh, like uh, a kind of unfettered puerile patriotism straight out of the 19th century. Uh, You can imagine people sitting there in their pith helmet and plumes writing it. Just some of it is laughable. Uh, But the the anti-Russia sense, which has a very powerful and very interesting and very tragic history itself, 
but the Russia hating has almost come to a head. And that Russia hating, of course, goes right back to 1917. Um, we're talking of invasions. It was the invasion the other way uh, in 1918, 1919. Uh, but the, the sense of it's, it's, it's as almost as if the, the West is reclaiming the history that it's felt rather insecure about, and that is who won the Second World War? Well, the decisive winner of the Second World War was the Red Army. I don't think there's any doubt statistically and in every other way without the Red Army's victory uh, over um, Hitler, uh, the war would not have been won as conclusively as it was. That's not what we're told in the West. And since 1945, much of the coverage of the wars of Western politicians, especially Anglo-American politicians, has been drawn from this rather um, uh, um, great ethical invention that uh, this was the pure war which was won by the United States and won by Britain and, uh, and, and somehow the real enemy is, was the Soviet Union uh, and today is Russia. That's that Russia hating, which has a almost racist tone about it, can never be underestimated. And it runs through everything now to the point that it's just irrational, much of the coverage. Um, yeah. Mm. The, the late Robert Perry, while, while he was alive, was an outstanding reporter. But the material he su submitted with Consortium News on Ukraine, while accurate, has been the source of a lot of controversy and, and the disinformation identifiers out there, the, the agencies and such, has targeted the work of Consortium News and other independent outlets uh, as being other uh, either misinformation or being a propagandist for Vladimir Putin. I mean, this is the degree of control they have now. I mean, dare I ask how much worse this can get? I mean, will we see independent journalists, uh, you know, possibly even yourself, disagreeing with the Western narrative on Ukraine actually being jailed? Well, I think we're dealing with one who is jailed at the moment, and getting him out of jail is really where our efforts are. But yes, that's at the end of the road. Um, um, whether uh, people like myself and others who uh, simply do our jobs uh, find ourselves threatened like that, well, we're threatened at the moment, of course. We're threatened by, by silence. It's very difficult to have work published, uh, and there's no greater sanction than that. Um, so, um, you know, Parry told the truth and the people you 
you you well you don't quote them but you refer to them uh, uh, are nobodies. Perry was a very distinguished journalist who was largely responsible for the revelations about Iran Gate uh, and founded in the 1990s Consortium News, which is following his death under its editor, Joe Loria, has, has carried on that, that uh, tradition. And yes, it has been, it has been threatened uh, because we have a form of insidious McCarthyism, which runs through everything today. Journalists are watched. Um, and unless they obey, unless they uh, um, uh, put out the so-called narrative, they will probably in the first instance find themselves out, or if not, they will be harassed in the way that consortium news has. Um, it's, a very, it's a very bad situation. Um, and one that should be taken out of the, the area of the media. And I think the public needs to understand that it concerns them because it is about illegitimate power, uh, dark power, power from behind the facade of democracies, reaching out and and silencing. Um, history has plenty of precedence about that. And uh, finally, I mean, with everything that, uh, I mean, you have the incarceration of, of Julian Assange and, and he was not publishing anything that Daniel Ellsberg did, isn't doing anything that Daniel Ellsberg did, didn't do. Um, he was just publishing leaked information, yet he's being put through hell. Now, I'm wondering like, how can we turn this around as, as journalists or uh, how, how can we you know, recreate a, a more civil and, and, and a society in which journalism, true journalism is being practiced and not just propaganda? Well, Robert Perry didn't, he wasn't just a cipher. He also interpreted these events and some of his best work has been an interpretation, explanation, which is the job of a journalist, not just simply to, uh, uh, to, to be the message carrier, but also to explain it. And that's what Robert Parry did, which made him such a, an excellent journalism. In answer to your broader question, um, look, for as long as I've been alive, the media has been an arm of, of um, the prevailing order of power. When I first went to work as a correspondent in the United States in the 1960s, I was struck by how all the newspapers, uh, which were then ascendant over television, and there was no social media, of course, how they all agreed with each other. Um, and there's a rather amusing story of a lot of Russians arriving from the Soviet Union, absolutely uh, stunned 
that they that the, in the United States they could pull off this uh, uniformity uh, without um, shoving people in prison as they didn't do in those days. Uh, it, 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 you know, it's the same thing in this country, in Britain. The media has always been owned by powerful, wealthy interests, corporations, uh, and that's true today, and so is social media. Uh, so in many ways, real journalism is an aberration uh, it, 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 breaks, it breaks the mold. But so a system was set up already. And it, it didn't, it wasn't a good system that's gone bad. The system always was as it is today, but it is the, the gaps in it in which independent journalistic voices could be heard have closed. That's the point. Mr. Pilger, we are out of time, but your voice is a rare and pivotal one. I thank you again for very, very much for sharing your thoughts on the subject with the Global Research News Hour. You're very welcome. Bye. We've been speaking with the award-winning Australian, Australian, British journalist and filmmaker, John Pilger. He is based in London. Pilger's website is www.johnpilger.com. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. A disturbing trend in independent journalism in recent months has been an astonishing assault on independent media for broadcasting the messages that go against the official narrative. It goes way beyond the shaming of media reporting a different view of the 9-11 terrorist attack as made or allowed to happen on purpose by media. Consortium News, which you just heard about, has been banned by PayPal the electronic alternative to payment by checks, money orders, and cash, from raising money or paying writers with the service, apparently because of their independent reporting, particularly in Ukraine. The news outlet has also been branded a red mark by the private media agency NewsGuard, which brands it a producer of false information. The online watchdog Mint Press News has similarly been cut off from PayPal. In a May 2022 article, Minar Adli, founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of Mint Press News, stated that, quote, We are experiencing censorship unlike anything we faced before, and Mint Press and other anti-war media have been facing five years of algorithmic shadow banning by big tech, unquote. She stated that independent anti-war journalists faced organized smear campaigns, deplatforming, and were given state-affiliated labels on their accounts and even outright purged off of social media platforms. The gray zone follows the same pattern of challenging official state propaganda disguised as news and received similar threats to their way of doing things, only they came to an astonishing conclusion about the work of these disinformation specialists. I talked to the editor-in-chief during the previous week.
My guest is Max Blumenthal, He's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. He's an award-winning journalist and the author of several books, including the best-selling Republican Gomorrah, Goliath, The 51-Day War, and The Management of Savagery. In recent months, uh, his group, The Gray Zone, has been facing a campaign to deplatform them, uh, along with Mint Press News and Consortium News and other independent media, presenting alternative facts in a war of lies. The authorities say that knowingly or unknowingly, these media outlets are putting out false facts and disinformation at the behest of Russian President Vladimir Putin. So the art of presenting them this way is the best method to make their discoveries melt without being subject to good old fashioned debate. Well, Max Blumenthal, however, goes one step further insofar as he exposes the exposers and found out that these transparent journalists and disinformation detectors are running their info in touch with, and in fact, at the behest of British intelligence. Max Blumenthal joins us right now to describe what he has found. It's a pleasure having you back, Max. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour. Thanks for having me back, Michael. Now, how long ago did you realize these people were targeting your journalism? Well, we've been targeted ever since the Syrian dirty war, which was around the time we came out as the Gray Zone Project at Alternet under the umbrella of a more mainstream progressive publication. That publication tanked, it went under like so many progressive institutions because of a dysfunctional culture inside the, inside the institution to put it lightly. And we went independent, continued to challenge the Syrian dirty war. And I became the target of what was obviously a coordinated campaign that did involve it, at least contractors for British intelligence that were involved in the dirty war. And we go on to explain this at length at the gray zone. But what we were able to do finally, and what I had always dreamed of doing was, as you put it, exposing the exposers, obtaining hard evidence of coordination and collusion between individuals who appeared to be acting in an independent fashion as journalists and uh, social media influencers and the intelligence services. And we got that hard evidence in the form of a tranche of emails that actually followed a separate tranche on British intelligence intrigues and illegal activity by people uh, in high positions in British state as well as NATO. Um, we got we obtained a tranche through an anonymous email account that pertained to the so supposedly leftist British journalist Paul Mason, a veteran Trotskyist, who was coordinating a campaign in his words to relentlessly deplatform the gray zone. That was actually those. No, I'm sorry. Those were actually the words of someone he was working with named Amil Khan, who was one of these contractors. He ran a firm that had contracted with the British Foreign Office and had even embedded with jihadist elements in Syria and was deeply involved in setting up uh, media fronts inside Syria to push the anti-Assad narrative and drive the campaign for regime change for several years. We exposed him for a separate operation. And so he got together with Paul Mason and then they went to a person who appears to have been Paul Mason's handler named Andy Price who 
exists within the foreign office, which as scholars of British intelligence know is basically the overt umbrella or parent organization of the MI5, MI6 and hosts many people who are working within the intelligence services. And Andy Price actually held a post that was dedicated to supposed counter disinformation operations. These were intelligence operations, absolutely. And he is someone who has the power to go to YouTube, to go to social media platforms and instruct them on who to deplatform. Um, I'll get to how I think this played out. But what we found was that first, Paul Mason and Amil Khan, the British in contractor, British intelligence contractor, proposed hosting an anti-gray zone summit in London with figures and organizations, including Bellingcat, which poses as an open source grassroots media organization taking on bad actors in Russia and Syria, but which Paul Mason correctly identified as intelligence services by proxy. <laughs> in other words, they're a cutout for the British intelligence and US intelligence services. And as we know, this is just a, an established fact, it's on Bellingcat's financial disclosures, they're funded primarily by the U.S. government through the National Endowment for Democracy, the regime change arm of the U.S. government. So they're proposing this summit also with someone at the BBC named Chloe Hajimateo, who is a producer on several specials attacking those who exposed the Syrian white helmets, attacking me, painting me as a Russian agent and so on. And I don't think this summit ever happened, but it was very revealing. And what they were planning to do was to dig up the true Russian links between the gray zone and, you know, Putin's FSB or the military intelligence GRU. They had this theory and Paul Mason primarily identified it that anyone who criticized him or who publicly criticized the Ukraine proxy war must have been a Russian agent. And so they thought that if they held this summit, they would find out the truth about us, which was actually a gigantic lie and libel. And then they would, in the words of Amil Khan, relentlessly deplatform us, stage lawsuits against us. And they also had planned a phony sting operation to kind of embarrass me and other people affiliated with the gray zone, which okay. I think uh, I'll just kind of uh, allude to it vaguely. I think they've already attempted this and they're not very smart. But so th that's the overarching attack on us. And, you know, it, it played out in various ways after we exposed them. Max was, I mean, you mentioned uh, Anil Khan. Was there a particular story that you were working on that, that seems to have uh, invoked the wrath and then say, hey, we got to go after this guy? So it's not just, I mean, it's not just that, they're, that the gray zone is being targeted among others. I mean, they seem to have a particular uh, emphasis on the gray zone. So what was what the story that you were working on, would you say? Well, we've exposed a lot of shady characters over the years, so they all have their knives out for us. Paul Mason was actually someone who we just, I and Aaron Mate criticized or mocked on Twitter. He held this leftist rally in support of the Ukraine proxy war, demanding direct military intervention by NATO with, you know, labor unionists. And we kind of made fun of him and that triggered him. But then there's Amil Khan, who we actually 
exposed it, not we, but Kit Clarenberg and myself. Kit is one of the best journalists working today on British intelligence affairs from a critical angle. Unlike other British journalists, he's not a stenographer for the intelligence services. He actually exposes what they do. And we reported that Amil Khan was contracted through the Royal Institution, which was funded under the watch of then Prince Charles, now King Charles, to astroturf a media propaganda campaign to take on critics of COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates. And they recruited a self-styled socialist um, influencer on YouTube who was um, very popular and did these high production, uh, high production value hist history lessons and also what were considered de-radicalization seminars to help pull people away from the extreme left and the extreme right, particularly the extreme right. And Emil Khan, with money through the Royal Institution, which was itself funded by the British um, state under the watch of then Prince Charles, set up an entire channel for this YouTube influencer to pose as grassroots and organic. And they were basically, so basically the British state was funding YouTube influencers to attack critics of COVID restrictions inside the UK and paint them as extremists and try to turn people away from that line of thinking. And we got the documents. Kit Clarenberg had the documents. He had all the files showing that this took place. This is, I mean, it, it's not illegal, but it's obviously a kind of Operation Mockingbird style manipulation of the public by the state working through a series of cutouts, making it seem like, oh, we're just being influenced by people who aren't being incentivized in any particular way and have no connection to any government. And uh, that triggered him. So that's what brought him together somehow with Paul Mason. We don't know how they got together, but it's just, the, the, there are just layers and layers here of illicit activities of intelligence intrigue and basically of the covert subversion of the public by people who pose as journalists and democratic actors and who are anything but. No, I, I know. Yeah, I've, I've read through a, a lot of your work. I mean, I know that um, in his, his own account, Paul Mason presented an epic list of connections that resembled a spider web of, of sources and associations and influencing. Uh, I note that Jeremy Corbyn, the former lab, labor leader now, uh, with, now he's with the, the Stop the War, um, he's an immense target on that radar screen. Where, where does he fit into all of this, do you think? Well, he's at the center of this Paul Mason mind map that Kit wow. Clarenberg turned up in one of the emails we obtained. Paul Mason drew what he called a mind map illustrating Russian and Chinese influence on the anti-war left, particularly the British left. And this is an absolutely bonkers chart that starts with the Russian and Chinese state to the left, then moves through the anti-war movement through a series of lines and connections. I don't know who drew it. I don't think Paul Mason has the technical wherewithal to do it, but he had someone produce it as kind of a professional looking document. 
And you'd see figures like Medea Benjamin or the Morning Star UK, which is a socialist paper in the UK, connected between the Russian or Chinese state and then another line pointing to Diane Abbott, who is a top supporter of Jeremy Corbyn in the British Parliament. And as you move right, it moves towards the center. And Jeremy Corbyn is sitting right there at the center, which is highly disturbing and revealing because Paul Mason posed as one of the top supporters of Corbyn and Corbynism within the British media. And all along, he saw Jeremy Corbyn as an agent of Russian influence, apparently. So was he infiltrating Jeremy Corbyn's campaign? Then the map moves further to the right to show who this influences within British society. And all the way to the right, you have the black community. <laughs> you have <laughs> the young networked left, you know, the laptop class of left, left-wing socialists who's, who were you know, behind Corbyn mania. You have uh, Scottish nationalists, labor unions. And basically Paul Mason was pointing to all of these key constituencies of Jeremy Corbyn and labor in general as vehicles for Russian influence and Chinese influence. That's what he thinks of the left. So was Paul Mason an infiltrator all along? And it does appear pretty clear that he is, at the very least, a security state collaborator from these emails. And there's another email that's very revealing where Paul Mason briefs the person who appears to be his handler in the foreign office, Andy Price, on a conference of Podemos, the sort of social democratic Spanish party that they convened with many more left-wing or Marxist elements against the Ukraine proxy war. And Mason provided a briefing that he found encouraging that the conference failed, that their calls for uh, you know, not sending arms to Ukraine fell on deaf in the Spanish government and that it was nothing to worry about. But I don't think anyone at that conference who encountered Paul Mason knew that he was there to report back to one of the countries that is engaged in a proxy war with Russia mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to it, a, a official of that country. So it does appear he was infiltrating. I don't know if he actually believes all this stuff or not, but uh, in any case, he's he's got all these connections. And I note that uh, he's also going after anti-war uh, academics. I mean, can you, you maybe describe because like to or we have we seen this sort of uh, attack before? Is it like uh, the return of uh, oh, was it McCarthyism? Well, it's McCarthyism, but not carried out in the open. Joseph McCarthy and Roy Cohn and their team at HUAC were not, not exactly hiding what they were trying to do. Paul Mason is, and he's saying in private to Andy Price, who appears to be his handler, that he it's the rogue academics that he's after. Those are his words. And by rogue academics, he means the group of the propaganda working group that consisted of a handful of British academics who were critical of the Syrian dirty war and who published exposés of the various propaganda machinations waged by the British intelligence services 
to cultivate support among the British public for the war and to essentially create the Syrian white helmets as an information operation. They, they examined the various claims of chemical attacks in Syria and exposed holes in the official narrative and they fell under enormous attack. Uh, front page of the Times of London featured a blistering and falsehood-laden attack on these academics. And Mason has extended the attack, apparently, with various collaborators, as Kit Clarenberg exposed at the Gray Zone, relying on leaked emails, hard evidence, showing that Mason was working through this pipeline of figures that went all the way into the BBC to attack academics who criticized the Ukraine proxy war, Justin Schlossberg being one who actually managed to force the BBC to issue uh, an apology and various corrections in its smear-laden report. Now, who produced that? It's the producer that I mentioned before who smeared me as a Russian agent on Syria who smeared all the critics of the Syrian dirty war. Her name is Chloe Hajimateu. And she's someone Kit Clarenberg is also exposed as having a close long-term working relationship with ARC, which is a British intelligence contractor that was active in the Syrian dirty war. So what we're exposing here is much bigger than all the names you're hearing. We're exposing a new kind of Operation Mockingbird where the media is acting as the publicity arm for the intelligence services, which are waging these various proxy wars and covert wars and destabilizing entire regions of the Middle East. And this is a war on the minds of the, on the cognition, on the critical thinking of ourselves and our friends and our neighbors. And that's why I think it's so important to expose. And it is a war nonetheless. Well, why do you think British intelligence, it seems to be very much, uh, you know, at, at the heart of this, but I mean, do you know anything about operations in the United States? Where Are they doing something similar? Well, of course. And we just haven't obtained the hard evidence to, to just produce a suite of stories exposing it. But we know that to be the case. Politico UK, uh, EU published a hit piece on Kit for exposing all of this anti-democratic behavior and activity on the part of not just Paul Mason and all the characters I've listed, but on other figures like former MI6 chief Richard Dearlove. We did a series on him and his uh, you know, friends within NATO and the British Civil Service on how they sought to uh, sabotage Theresa May because they wanted a hard Brexit. And, you know, this is just, this, this is, these are just stories that I think are in the public interest. The public deserves that level of transparency about these major issues like Brexit or Ukraine. And we're providing that to them, whether you agree with us or not. Mm-hmm. And Politico attacked him for providing, for literally just doing journalism and smeared him smeared us. They, they called in all of their counter disinformation pseudo experts who are all funded by the British state and have called for us to be deplatformed. <laughs> People like Ross Burley from this phony cutout called the uh, Center for Information Resilience. And what was so interesting about that article 
of course it primarily involves the UK kit. Clarenberg is British. One of the first accounts, if not the first account to tweet it out was the cyber warfare division of the U S army. So, I mean, I, I assume we're on their, their radar. They took a great interest in this. Um, but with the Ukraine war, I mean, it, it, we know that the U.S. is taking the lead, but the British state, at least under Boris Johnson and I assume under Liz Trust, they are always trying to push the boundaries and expand the parameters of what NATO and the U.S. are doing there. Uh, and I think that you know has to do with historical historical relationship between the U.K. and Russia and the UK's desperation to restore its kind of neo-colonial influence. One final point, uh, Max. Um, you were in Canada earlier this year as, as part of a meeting of mainstream media outlets. Uh, tell us about some of the things that you said and, and the responses you got from colleagues. Yeah, it was called Collision. And um, on, I, I actually, um, when my seminar took place, with Aaron Mate, we got like 15 minutes on stage. We had to miss a Q&A with Eric Schmidt, one of the founders of Alphabet, Google, who is working with the Pentagon on its fourth offset to produce an AI weapon to use against China. And I'd seen him speak earlier that day and Eric Schmidt was predicting and, and actually touting a future in which all of us will have an AI twin that will guide us through our lives. Deeply dystopian conference, uh, but uh, very educational for me and interesting. And, you know, you, you also had the Obama Foundation pushing their counter disinformation agenda the day before. You had people from the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which had labeled my colleague Aaron Mate the number one propagator of disinformation on Syria. They are funded by the State Department and the UK Foreign Office. These are the kind of people on stage at the conference. So Aaron and I got 15 minutes to just go nuts on them. And we packed in as much as we could along with a call for the freedom of Julian Assange and emphasizing the importance of his, of combating his persecution. And I warned the people who attended our seminar who were, many of them were young people who were seeking investment for their startups. Other one, others were just uh, looking for gigs doing coding and not everyone there with some um, reptilian transnational elite. I told them that that the policies of that people like Eric Schmidt or the Biden administration and the Trudeau administration were pursuing, whether in Taiwan or Ukraine, were going to doom them, and their startups would not would not be starting up, and they would not be able to be homeowners, and they will not be able to afford to heat their homes in any case, and they will suffer and that they need to stop following the corporate media that is trying to redirect their outrage at their own situation to phony villains and to see that their enemy wasn't in the some trumper in the bar room it was some heartless suit in the boardroom that that was kind of the message i i wanted to send there uh, we, because the sessions were running like 15 minutes, you had another session coming up with top ABC executives, people from Reuters to talk about 
I don't know, disinformation. The, the panel before us was about January 6th and it was the lead ABC producer uh, discussing how they were doing everything within their power to maximize the impact of the January 6th hearing so that the public absorbs it as much as possible. And I was saying, why, why are we still focusing on January 6th when the U.S. is waging January 6th on steroids across the world. Like, do we ever hear about that? And that really offended people. Uh, the green room right afterwards was tense. I got icy glares from mainstream media colleagues. Uh, one person from ABC, I heard her kind of ranting about us in the corner of the room and we were shuffled out immediately. Um, then a number of uh, media personnel went to the planners of the conference and complained about us and were really upset. So that made me feel good. That was a, a bad honor. <laughs> and outside the room, I, I invited everyone outside the room to come have an informal Q&A with me. Anyone who wanted to yell at me or express disagreement, I would wait in the hall for them. And what we got were a handful of young people who attended the conference, all of whom were of immigrant backgrounds, mostly from the Middle East, also from South Asia who told us they identify with our perspective and it's really, you know, upsetting to see what's happening in these countries that their families now call home. Well, that's interesting. Now, Gandhi famously said that first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. So it seems these people wanting to preserve the Western friendly media narrative are at stage three. Um, Max, yeah. it's, been, it's been a pleasure having you on, uh, technicalities aside. Thank you for joining us on the Global Research News Hour. Well, I look forward to joining you again when we're still in stage three. Okay. <laughs> We've been speaking with Max Blumenthal, award-winning journalist and the founder and editor-in-chief of The Gray Zone. Please get more info by visiting thegrayzone.com. And with that, we conclude another episode of the Global Research News Hour. Next week, it's my intention to continue this examination of the mainstream media by looking at the way it has handled coverage of the threat of COVID. We hope to have an actual debate right here in seven days' time. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.